All right. Well, welcome to the first night of The Point. Excited that you guys are here and hope to see you all uh, every Monday here at 7 o'clock. Um, one of the things I love about Ron is Ron's heart is a big part of his heart is to keep developing and challenging the minds and the hearts of everyone that is uh, surrounds him, whether it's at his church or wherever he's been. And so one of the focal points of The Point is to really focus on um, just some real serious teaching to educate, to equip. It's part of a ministry known as Rock Point University, where we're really trying to bring in a variety of people through Rock Point to teach guest lectures and these things, and a number of those will come. Ron has announced several times already, Lee Strobel will be coming here in the fall, and we're going to try to get some other speakers to come in as well. Uh, but on Monday nights, it'll be, t- it'll be a time of just um, hopefully fun, but also um, a lot of teaching and really delving into God's Word, we're going to be looking at um, a lot of current books on the scene, what's out there, uh, looking at things that are real personal in nature to all of us, how they affect us, and really trying to develop our hearts, our souls, and our minds um, as we offer those before God. So what I'm going to do for the first uh, handful of weeks is I'm going to kind of uh, tonight introduce a subject that's been a part of my life for years. God kind of threw me into an area known as apologetics. And we're going to hit some kind of key issues along the way for a couple of weeks um, as we do that. Now, a lot of times when, when I say the word apologetics, people immediately begin to think of kind of this cold, kind of sterile, rational argumentation, and people kind of lose maybe some interest in it. But what I've found in my experience is everywhere I've gone and, and traveled and spoken on apologetics issues, there has been a buzz. Because when people hear that someone is scratching an itch that's out there, uh, they want more. Uh, I've rarely experienced the time when I've taught on issues in the areas of understanding why we believe what we believe, where people just were absolutely uninterested and bored. And the reason is, is because we are living in an age, as we have in many ages, but particularly today, we're living in an age where Christianity truly is under assault. It is under assault morally, It is under assault intellectually. It is under assault on a very personal level through all the things that vie for our attentions. Would you guys agree with that? So we are in a very unique day that not just now our our minds are being attacked, but our bodies, our hearts are being vied for by all kinds of things in the world today. And so uh, what I hope to do as we meet on Monday night is to try to strengthen our minds, to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our, just our resilience to stand firm in a world that is vying for every aspect of our lives. And so that we uh, don't have to waver and be like James says, tossed and turned, torn to and fro by the winds and the waves. That we could stand resolved and firm and walk with a truly intimate walk with Christ. Not a rational walk with Christ, though that may be a component of it. I mean an intimate walk where you love him, where you recognize that Christ is the source of all goodness. He is the source of peace and hope, and he is the rest of your life. Y'all with me? That's why we're going to be here at the point, is to come together and just, if I could say it in this way, kind of inject us with some spiritual steroids on Monday night and really just kind of muscle up both in our hearts and our minds and strengthen up to walk the Christian life. So that's what we're going to do every Monday. Um, we're going to hit it hard and we're going to go fast. Y'all stay with me. Some weeks I'll bring notes to you guys so you can have them. Other weeks uh, I won't get around to it. So you can just 
vociferously uh, take notes and I'll give you a, a website or something. I don't know. We'll do something like that. You know, uh, just the other day, a uh, couple weeks ago, I met uh, the one um, allowed addictive establishment in America by God, a Starbucks. And I was, I was there, and, and God allows that addiction. That's okay to be addicted to Starbucks. So I'm there, my standard three times a day. I've already been there twice. I'll hit it one more time on my way home tonight. And it's great uh, because I, I, I can't tell you the countless numbers of people I have conversations with at Starbucks, um, and I love it. It's just, I mean, if you want a ready-made place to do, to, just to talk with people, to get in people's lives, man, it's, it's there. It's on every corner of the city. It's called Starbucks. And so, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting there reading, and this, this guy recognized me. He's oh, probably mid-20s. This is up in Denton. And he says, uh, hey, you're, you're Walt Nussbaum, right? I said, yeah. He goes, man, he said, I heard you speak at this deal one time, and, man, I really liked it. He said, can, can I sit down for a few minutes? I said, absolutely, sit down. He said, I, I just got to ask you some things because I'm really struggling. I said, what are you struggling with? He said, man, I have never, ever doubted my faith. He said, but, man, he said, uh, I've been reading some stuff, and there's a guy at my work now that's been bringing some stuff to me, and I'm reading through this stuff. And he said, man, honestly, i got to tell you, I, I just have lost it. He said, I've lost the fire. And he said, I don't know what to do, and I saw you sitting over there, and I just wanted to know, is there any way you can help me out? I said, you bet, man. I said, well, well tell me some of the things that you've been reading. What are some of the things you've been thinking through? And he began to walk through some things. And let me tell you, when you've done this, and I'm only 37, but I've done this a while. When you've done this as long as I have, there's very few new, new things on the block. And this guy gives the standard rat-tat stuff that I've seen out there. And I asked the guy, I said, listen, I want to talk through this with you, but let me ask you. Have you approached anybody with these kinds of questions? And he said, I don't know anybody to talk to. I said, nobody? I said, what about your singles minister? Um, and he said, well, I went to him, and he kind of gave me some things, but he, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I asked him for some resources, and he didn't really know any books. And he said he'd get back to me, and he never did. What a tragedy, huh? And I said, well, so we started walking through these things, and some of the questions he had, as soon as he just began to see what the question was, how you can approach this thing biblically, I, you could literally see the guy's face, just his countenance began to change because he began to see kind of this resurgence of hope in his life again. That's this, this thing that gave him so much hope and joy and peace in his life that began to be sucked out of him once again made sense. You see, and that story about this guy, I wish I could say that was rare. That is not rare. I get more emails and phone calls from people about hitting a paralysis of their faith, uh, questions coming their way. They don't have the foggiest idea what to do with good questions. But why is it that when we are in the 21st century, We've got more information accessible to us. Why is it that the church today is just as ill-equipped today as it was 30 or 40 years ago? I don't understand why that is. You know, the fact that we have a forum like this where we have a Rock Point University where we seek to educate and equip, 
believe it or not, that's a rarity. That's not a common feature that you see at a lot of churches where they're, they're geared towards educating in the areas of theology and apologetics and philosophy and these sorts of things to help people understand the foundations of their faith. And that's one reason why I just, wherever Ron goes, I'm like a little puppy dog. I just kind of follow him along because he lets me do what I love to do. And, uh, and, and I love Ron's heart for that. Uh, that's apologetics. Apologetics is simply, it's the use of rational and personal arguments to persuade men and women towards the Christian faith. It's the use of rational and personal arguments to persuade men and women to the Christian faith. Now, I've run into, I can't tell you how many people I've run into who are Christians who say, man, who needs apologetics? You can't argue people into the kingdom. You ever hear that? You ever think that? What's the point of it? You can't argue people into the kingdom. Well, first of all, let me say, no kidding. I've yet to meet a single apologist who thinks you can argue anybody into the kingdom. However, there are barriers to faith that are out there. And there are intellectual barriers that God has raised up certain people to help strip and remove those barriers to make Christ accessible to the minds of men. You see? And so you'll hear people say that. Well, when you look at your Bible, we're going to be in Acts 26 tonight, but I just want to give you kind of a broad sweep of your new, of the Gospels. You know, each of your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of those writings, they're not just biographies of Jesus. I mean, we read those and we see you've got, for some of them, the birth of Jesus, the kind of the life of Jesus' ministry, his death and his resurrection. It's not merely a biography. These writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote these books to persuade men and persuade women as to who Christ was. These are apologetic treatises. They are written to persuade. One of the unique features, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew, more than any other Gospel writer, he shows the fulfillment of what? Anybody know? He shows the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. saw Bill Mulholland. He was about to say that nice and loud, but he's not because he doesn't want to get on tape. That's right. I got your back, Bill. Matthew is all about the fulfillment of prophecy. Thus, it has been fulfilled. And the reason that Matthew does that throughout his gospel is to show that this Jesus who has come, he has finally fulfilled centuries-old predictions of the coming of the Messiah. He was there to prove to the Jews that he's here. Look at the gospel of Mark, your second gospel. Just let me show you a couple things in here, just to kind of show you how important this was to these early authors. The very uh, chapter 2. You've got the ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 1. In chapter 2 you've got this event of the paralytic that comes before Jesus. Remember his friends bring him. And look what happens here. They came, verse 3, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. Outrageous. These people are thinking, is this guy serious? Your sins are forgiven? Isn't that amazing? This is how Mark begins his gospel. 
John the Baptist is the forerunner, then boom, you begin with Jesus proclaiming the power to forgive sins. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but what? Or shall I say who? But God alone. You see the point Mark is making right out of the chute in the gospel. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, why does Mark stick that at the beginning of his gospel? You know why? Because the rest of his gospel is going to prove that Jesus is what? Is God. And you've got this encounter now where Jesus, before he heals the paralytic, he says to these people, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Well, which one's easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because why? Because if I say rise, take up your pallet and walk, now that can be tested, can it? Because if you don't rise and take up your pallet and walk, then that means my statement your sins are forgiven, is what? Bogus. So if the hardest thing to do is to say, rise and walk, that means the easier thing that was said, which is your sins are forgiven, is what? Is true. So now Jesus looks at the man on the, uh, on the mat and he says, on his pallet, and he says, rise, walk, take up your pallet and go. And the man rises. And when Jesus did that, here's the response. Verse 12, he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were what? Glorifying God. What a way to start your gospel. See, Mark was writing to an audience to prove that Jesus was God. And he did that by right out of the chute saying he alone has the power to forgive sins. You know how he ends his gospel? By the way, that's called an Oreo approach. A lot of times you want to see how an author starts his book and ends his book, and there's usually something that's connected between the two. If you go to Mark 15, the very second to last chapter, Jesus is on the cross. He's crucified. Verse 37, Jesus utters a loud cry, breathes his last the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And here we go. If you got your Bible, you ought to circle this verse. Verse 39. When the centurion, the Roman guard at the bottom of the cross, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly what? This man was the son of God. You see what Mark does? Mark is writing the entire gospel to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you go to Luke, Luke does the same thing. He focuses on something different. This is kind of, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I see how Luke did this. Chapter 3 of Luke, listen to this. See if you can think of how many historical details Luke mentions. Because you know what Luke's going to do? He's going to root Jesus right smack in history. Because Luke is a physician. And details matter and history matters. And he even says, I investigated everything. He even looked at, Luke says, at other sources. So Luke did a thorough investigation. Who is this Jesus guy? 
Luke, by the way, is believed by most scholars to be a Gentile. Your only Gentile author of your New Testament, most likely. He writes Luke and he writes Acts. One third of your New Testament is written by a Gentile. And look what he does. Chapter one or chapter three, verse one. He says. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Itria and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. What did he just do? He gave you every, he gave you the governor, the, 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 what's underneath the governor in Texas? The, uh, lieutenant governor? Who's actually, I guess, more powerful? He gives you the mayor? He gives you the county commissioner? Mulholland, I love you. The county commissioner. And he says, man, this is exactly when this was. See? Because Luke cares about the details. And he names the guys. Because, listen, he knew in that day, people were going to want to test this out for themselves. So, you know what? I'm going to give you every name of every position. And I'm going to tell you exactly where this happens. John. I love John Slant. Go to John chapter 1. John uses a word that some of you are familiar with, and it's a word that was a very common and popular word among pagan philosophy. It was the word logos. And that word logos was a word that oftentimes had something to do with the meaning of life. And that's how a lot of pagan philosophers used the word logos. They had a variety of meanings to it. John now takes a word that's so common in pagan thought And he begins his gospel, how? In the beginning was the Word. And that Word is the word Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Logos, what? Was God. And just to make sure that we're not thinking that it's some abstract philosophical concept out there, the Logos. In verse 14, he moves on and he says, and he, what? Dwelt. Among us in the flesh. And John now all of a sudden takes this concept that the Greeks held to. And he brings it down from the abstract. And he brings it to the concrete. And he wraps it in flesh. And he says the Logos is the word. And this word is Jesus. And for the rest of the Gospel of John. You see Jesus take on all of the names and the associations of God himself. If you have seen me. What? You've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father but through me. And over and over and over, you see people seeing Jesus. And you see Thomas falling down and him saying, my Lord and my God. See? Matthew Fulfilled prophecy. Mark, the power to forgive sins. Indeed, this is the Son of God. Luke, roots Jesus in history. John, takes a philosophical concept like the Logos and shows that Jesus is the divine Logos. He is God wrapped in human flesh who died for the sins of the world. And the end response is, my Lord and my God. 
No, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these aren't merely biographies of an ancient historical figure. These are apologetic works seeking to convince the reader, when you read it, that this man, Jesus, indeed is the Son of God. And so, you move on through the rest and you see in the book of Acts where we're going to be. You see this idea of trying to persuade men throughout the rest of your New Testament. Paul does it over and over. For instance, look in Acts 17 if you have your Bible. Acts 17. Beginning in verses 1 through 4, look what Paul does. Paul's got some time in Thessalonica. What do you do? Well, when they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and given evidence that the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is what? The Christ, or literally, to the Jewish ears, was what? The Messiah. See? And he reasoned and gave evidence from the Scriptures as to who Jesus was. And I could take you in a half a dozen places where Paul stands up and he proclaims and reasons and gives evidence and seeks to persuade men. And you know what the result is? Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. See? Paul's commitment to proclaiming what's true, to teaching who Jesus is. He was foretold. He came to forgive sins. These things persuaded men, and they believed. You see? That's why we do this. Remember Ravi Zacharias, if you guys have ever heard of him, he's a really wonderful, unique type of an apologist. He's what he, he calls himself an existential apologist. He, rather than dealing with a lot of the historical, factual, scientific details, which he does some of that, he really seeks to use apologetics to penetrate the heart, to show that the longings of every human being is for something that transcends themselves, and that Christ, he is the living water that fills that. So he's this existential. He seeks to reach into the very internal being of his audience to try to let them see that they're in desperate need of something, and I've got the answer. And the answer is Jesus himself. And Ravi Zacharias, when speaking to a, uh, I think it was a conference of pastors, said that the 21st century pastor is going to have to add another tool in his repertoire, and that is he's going to have to be an apologist. Because he's going to see people in the 21st century struggling and wavering in their faith, because there are so many things out there that are going to be challenging us at every level, we've got to be a people ready and equipped. Just out of curiosity, how many of you here know somebody who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in Christianity for some sort of intellectual reasons? whole bunch of us. Man, I, did, I spoke at a conference about 3,000 high school kids a couple summers ago. The theme was apologetics. I asked that same question. How many of you know somebody that doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in Christianity because of some intellectual reason? Man, there were 6,000 hands up. I spoke eight times that week. And I tell you what, um, actually, that was like four summers ago. Benita and his, her daughter Allison were there. And, man, it was, and I say this with all humility, walking through OBU, it was like being a rock star. 
I get through speaking all week long, doing Q&As, all these things, trying to meet the kids where they are, answering questions that they had. I couldn't go 10 feet without signing an autograph. Felt weird. Never want to do that. Don't ever ask Ron for his autograph. It's a weird feeling. But seriously, remember that? Everywhere I went, hey, Walter, hey, Walter, I got another question for you. Why is that? It's because, man, we are inquisitive culture. We are an information-seeking culture. And we as the body need to be prepared to be able to, uh, as Peter says, always be ready to give a defense or an answer for the hope that's within us. But with what? Two qualities. You know what those two qualities are? What are they? Gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Now, I wish I remembered that about 15 years ago. Because when I got into this stuff, man, I was ready. I was Mike Tyson, man. I mean, I was ready to go at it. Man, I just was ready to win the argument. I was just immature. I was excited about this stuff. And uh, just God showed me some things along the way about being gentle and meeting people where they're at, seeking to understand before I seek to be understood, these sorts of things. And, man, when I do this stuff now, I listen. I ask lots of questions. I'd probably say 70% of my evangelism and talking with people is asking questions. You know, at the end of a 30-minute conversation, I probably ask them, you know, 20 questions about them and why they think this and why, now why, why do you say that? Now, explain that to me again. Getting them to share their heart and their mind with me so that I can help them maybe to connect some dots later. My evangelism used to be, I've got my system. I've got my chair illustration. I've got my egg illustration, my one rotten egg. I wouldn't want to mix it in that batch. I've got my key illustration, and I'm ready. I mean, I'm ready to tackle. If they could just shut up for 20 minutes and let me share my whole presentation and not say a word, man, I could really, I could really convince them that they need Jesus. Just shut up for just a few minutes. I'm talking. And that's how a lot of people are when they do the faith. It's just they you overwhelm them as opposed to just building a relationship and letting them know that you care. Uh, gosh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I'm on an airplane flying to Houston. And uh, this very large man boards the plane. Of all seats in the plane, of course, God sits him next to me. He's a minimum 350, minimum. He's a very large man in a very nice suit. And he's talking to everybody walking down the aisle. Hey, ho-ho, just big guy, just outgoing. I'm thinking, this guy sells Amway or something, man. This guy, he is way too over the top. And he comes and sits down next to me. Hey, man, we're going to Houston, huh? Yeah. No, I'm going to Baltimore. Yeah, I'm going to Houston. Business or pleasure? I said, ah, oh, you know, I've got my son with me. It's, you know, pleasure. And, uh, oh, man, that's great. That's great. Hey, what you got there? And I had my Bible. I go, oh, that's my, uh, my Bible. He goes, oh. He goes, man, I grew up in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. And, man, I got the bleep out of there as fast as I could. And, he, man, he just began to tell me all of these reasons why he left the church. And why he ran as fast as he could, 
And I asked him to, to try to explain to me some of the things that he understood about basic Christian thought, basic Christian doctrine about man, about God. This guy was so skewed and so off base that I wondered, how did this guy go 30 plus years in his church, which, by the way, is a good conservative denomination. How did he go that many years in that type of denomination and have that kind of misrepresentation of what the gospel was and of who God is and of who Jesus is? He was totally off the mark. And I sat there, and I, you know, we just I tried to laugh with them and talk with them, just trying to be where he's at and uh, just kind of shared with him about my faith. And what I did is I just began to share my life, how I grew up in a Greek Orthodox home. Faith wasn't really that prevalent in my life and how God radically changed my life later. And, you know, the power of that testimony oftentimes is one of the greatest apologetics you can have. And I want to show you that before we conclude. We've got a few minutes here before we conclude. I want you to look at Acts 26 for me. Paul in Acts 26 stands before King Agrippa. I want you to see this. He's got a chance here to let himself off the hook. He's been in prison. He's been before Fest, Felix and Festus. Sounds like Andy and Mayberry, doesn't it? Felix and Festus. He's Now he's before Barney Fife, right? And he gets a chance now to uh, to get off the hook if he wants. Uh, but he doesn't. You know what Paul does? Paul takes this opportunity and he goes ahead and he pulls the trigger and he is going to preach to King Agrippa. And he's going to give King Agrippa five reasons why he should consider Christ, why he should believe in Jesus. And at the very end of the account, King Agrippa says, Paul, that's enough for if you continue with this, you may persuade me to be a Christian. And that was Paul's point. You know what Paul's very first argument is he uses? I'll tell you the others real quick since we don't have time to go over them. We'll go over them some other time. His second argument is that King Agrippa and Jesus, there's the forgiveness of sins. His third argument is that um, you have uh, uh, fulfilled prophecy. The Moses and the prophets foretold of Jesus to come. The fourth reason he gives them is that they foretold of the resurrection of Jesus. He uses the resurrection. And the fifth reason he gives is he says, Agrippa, check this out for yourself. For all these things that I say to you haven't been done in a corner. Meaning we're a public faith. We're not one of these mystery religions back then that would hide and have secret knowledge that they wouldn't tell anybody about. Christianity was public, man. You know, and it was Christians who went out and established the orphanages. It was Christian women in the early centuries that would go uh, over the city walls and gathered the little children that were thrown over the walls and they would take them in and raise these children so they wouldn't be eaten by the dogs and the wolves um, uh, in the wilderness. It was Christians who came in and began to uh, preach the dignity of mankind and that all men are in the image of God. And Paul says to Agrippa, hey, come check it out, King Agrippa. These things have not been done in a corner. We are a public faith. Amen. We are public. We're the ones who go out. And we're the ones who don't have anything to hide. It's not like those two guys on bikes that ride on with their shirts and their ties. And they go door to door. And they tell you everything but the truth behind the theology of what they're trying to tell you. 
They'll meet with you for six weeks, show you six videos, and in this, those six videos, they'll never tell you any of the deep theology of the law of eternal progression, of who God once was, and who you can become, and all those things. They keep that kind of concealed until you finally get dunked and baptized, and you're in. Now we get to spring it on you. Oh, by the way, did you know you get to be a God someday? Really? Yeah. And they just kind of keep that under wraps until you're in. Hey, we're not like that. Man, we tell you he's a virgin-born Savior. He's a Savior, man, that he claimed to be God. There's a trinity. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all three are God, and they're all three, they're three persons they make up the Godhead. Unashamedly, we tell them, even the things that are paradoxical, we don't hold anything back. Here's Paul's first argument. I'm going to do it very quickly here. Paul begins here and he says, verse 4, he says to King Agrippa, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. What is Paul doing? The first thing, what's he sharing here? He's sharing his testimony. And he walks through all the way through the next six verses. And he says, man, if anybody was zealous against Christians, I was even more zealous. I was out to kill those guys. Because it was blasphemy to say that Jesus was God. And then one day, O king, at midday, I'm riding on my donkey. And I see a bright light. And I get knocked off and I hear a voice. And it says, Saul, Saul. Why does why dost thou persecute me? And remember that? And Paul at that point says, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And the very thing, first thing Paul does is Paul shares his testimony. One of the most powerful apologetics that all of us have at our disposal, and it's something that every one of us have in this room. You may not know all the historical details or all the other stuff yet. You haven't read it. That's okay. But the one thing that you have is you have the power of a changed life. And Paul does it in Acts 22. He does it in Acts 24, I think. He does it in Acts 26. He starts off with his testimony and he says, My life is a life that demands to be reckoned with. You must explain my changed life. Now, we get the privilege of doing that too, except there's a catch. In order for that to work, what do you have to have? A changed life. Don't go out and do that if your life ain't changed. They'll look at you and go, what a joke. I don't think if that's what Jesus does for you, I'm fine with nothing. See, you need to have the changed life. And Paul then goes in and he says, Agrippa, there is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And you need your sins forgiven. And these things have been foretold. And Jesus rose from the dead. And this thing is public. Amen. See, that's apologetics, guys. That is taking what we know and believe that's changed our lives and going to people around us in our environment that you uniquely have access to, and it is praying the Holy Spirit would use you to persuade men and women for the cause of Christ. That's good. That's apologetics. In the next couple of weeks, we're just going to take a few 
questions that people have. We're going to look at these things. How do you make sense of them? And if anything else, even if you never, ever use this with anybody, which I find hardly uh, possible if we're out there doing what God has called us to do, because where there's unbelievers, there's the need for apologetics. Trust me. I've rarely shared the gospel with somebody that was an unbeliever that I didn't have to somehow engage them on a rational level and on a personal level. So it's there. So what we're going to do is just take some of these salient questions, and if anything, it will at least strengthen and encourage your faith and to show you the solid ground and foundation for why we believe what we believe, and hopefully it will encourage us to press on.